Amen. Lord, we, we do thank you that you are holy, you are perfect, you are righteous, you are just, you are faithful, you are a loving God. Lord, we pray right now as we go to your word, the Lord, for the sake of your people, that you would be our teacher tonight. That we would, you give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to each and every one of us. We thank you, we praise you, we gather to lift up your name, to glorify you. And we desire above all else to be drawn into intimate fellowship with you. To know you in a more personal way, in a better way, in a deeper way. Lord, may you move in a mighty way that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Good to have you here. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 26. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. A couple announcements that uh, Bill didn't make that I think he was waiting for Sunday, but I'll tell you now. We have firm dates on our Israel trip. We'll have a handout on that on Sunday. It's going to be in March. I don't know the exact dates off the top of my head, but I know we have firm dates, and we will have a flyer for that on Sunday. Also, uh, from September the 17th to October the 1st, I'm going to be going back to India. Most of you know I go, I go every year. Well, this year there's an opportunity for anybody who uh, might want to come along who has um, any kind of skills in either construction or the medical field. We're going to be going to Sri Lanka, which is the uh, place where the tidal wave hit. And, you know, a lot of times the, the thrust of people goes right away, and then there's nothing a, a year later. And so uh, there will be four senior pastors going. I'll be pairing off with one guy and go off and teach in the Bible colleges during the day. But we'll be staying in the same place at night. So if any of you have interest in that, there will be some more information hopefully on Sunday. So be praying about that. And uh, I don't know that you necessarily have to be a, you know, a real gifted carpenter or anything, but maybe if you're just handy and you want to come, I'm sure that they'll put you to work. So, and this is the first time Gospel for Asia has done anything like this. They usually only have uh, teaching, so this would be a great opportunity to go over there and love on those folks in Jesus' name. Amen? All right. Deuteronomy 26. Now, as we know, real briefly, this is the second giving of the law. And again, that's what Deuteronomy means, second giving or second law. And Moses is now just days away. As we come to this chapter, he's literally just days away from leaving this congregation, the children of Israel, and making his way up to Mount Pisgah, where he's going to be ushered into paradise. And he knows that that day is close at hand, and these are some of his final words. And as with any you know, man that God is using in a mighty way, it's important that we heed those words. You know, the final words he has are coming up in these final few chapters. He's got a heart for these people. He loves these people. And he gathered the people together and he reminded them of God's covenant. And God's covenant in the old covenant was, this do and you shall live. This do and you shall live. That's really the, the summary of the old covenant. Do this and you'll live. Walk in obedience and you'll live. Now you and I know that as he instructed them in how to walk in obedience in the land of promise, this land of prosperity, that there was going to be temptation waiting for them and he was encouraging them and instructing them. He told them they'd face false idols and pagan people. And he told them not to compromise, but walk in obedience to Almighty God. Now the last chapter, it's interesting because he dealt with punishment. When they went into the land, they still needed a government. You know, there was no government in the land. There was no government at the time. There were no police. So they needed to govern themselves. And they governed themselves with God being at the head and His law being the law. Wouldn't that be great if that were true today? Wouldn't you love it if the Bible was the, you know, if you want to look up the law, look in the Bible. You know, it's interesting Total side note, I was in the Bahamas a couple years ago on a vacation with my family, and I don't know if it's still true, but at the time, any law that was passed had to go through these group of pastors, and if they didn't agree with it, it didn't become law. And I said, man, that's a pretty sweet program there. 
You know, and there was a nation that I went to their fourth, their, it wasn't fourth of July, but whatever their Independence Day is. And while we were there, and it was all Jesus, and it was worship songs, and I was like, wow. You know, and you know what? That's what my heart is for this country again. But then he said, you know, when you go into the land, there needs to be punishment for crime to protect the people. The crime should fit, uh, the punishment should fit the crime, that they're to provide for those who are in ministry full time and also for the widows who are in need. And they were to protect others and not take advantage of one another. And then the, the final section last week, if you remember, he talked about the Amalekites. Remember the Amalekites are a type of the flesh? They were the ones that were coming up behind the children of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt, and they were picking off the old and the weak and the invalid. And we talked about the application for us is that we need to stay front and center with God. And the last thing we want to do is be walking far away from Him. Amen? The last thing we want to do is be out of fellowship and be in a place where the enemy can come up and pick us off. So it's extremely important to note that, again, that while all these physical acts were being put into place, all these laws and all these rules... As you and I know today, those things can't save you. You can't be saved by the law. The law cannot bring you into a a personal, intimate relationship with Almighty God. So you might say, well, then why was Moses spending all this time giving them the law? Well, the law is certainly a great guideline for us to live by. Amen? It's a great standard. It's a great guideline. But you know what? It won't save us. It won't get us into heaven. What is the law? The law, as it says in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, the law is a schoolmaster or a taskmaster that leads us to the cross. The law reveals our sin and our need for a savior. So Moses is there and he gives them the law and he's telling them, you know, and, and even, if, even if they obey completely, what if every criminal was removed? What if there was generous provision for all who served faithfully and everybody was in need, all their needs were taken care of? What if all the people were kind with one another? What if there was a complete removal of all idol worship and fleshly inhabitants in the land? What if they completely and totally obeyed? There would still be a need for a sacrifice. Amen? So the law itself, it's the law, but there was still the sacrificial system. And they still had to go and bring that offering before the Lord. Moral lives do not earn salvation, and again, it reveals our need for salvation. And there's a clear contrast between the Old and the New Testament, because Moses' final words, remember, he gathers the people together, we're going to see it tonight, he's going to continue talking to them, but the Old Covenant was, this do, and you shall live, and man failed. Do this, and you'll live, man failed. Did they completely follow the law? Absolutely not. Did they fall short? Yes. Do you and I fall short? Without question. You know what's interesting? Those were his final words. He went up to Mount Pisgah and he, was, he entered into paradise. Many years later, another man came. And he gathered his followers to him. His name, of course, is Jesus. And he didn't tell them, this do and you shall live. But before he went up to the mountain, not Mount Pisgah, but Mount Calvary, and entered into paradise, he said, this do in remembrance of me. He didn't say, do this and you'll enter in. He said, this do in remembrance of me. So we look back to the cross and realize that's our source of salvation, amen? Now, should we still live life set apart to God? Absolutely, because the law does not produce salvation, but you know what? Salvation should produce an obedient walk before God, amen? At least a desire for it and a brokenness when we fall short of it. Moses in the law reveals our sin, our desperate need for a Savior. Every sacrifice points to Christ, and when you get to the new covenant, you find out that Jesus paid it all. And again, Jesus, remember, not what you ought to do, but what, you, what he has done for you. With Jesus, it's not what you ought to do, it's what he's done for you. That's your source of salvation. It's the cross of Christ. Now, that obedience, we're going to talk about some more tonight. 
does produce blessings, though. When we walk in obedience to God, are we blessed? Yes, you hear me say it many times. When we're obedient, God is glorified and we get blessed. We walk in the center of God's will. He does great and awesome things in our life. We get outside of his will. We reap the consequences of sin. Now, if we were, if we were able, which we're not, to walk in the center of his will all the time, it still would not save us. It's not the source of salvation, obedience, but it is the fruit of salvation. So tonight's text will instruct the children of of Israel in making confessions and bringing offerings and tithes before God. Now, I didn't plan this. But isn't it amazing how the last four messages in a row have all been about giving? I never talk about giving, right? If it's in the text, we talk about it. And it's amazing. For, I mean, we're in 1 Corinthians and we're in Deuteronomy, or 2 Corinthians, and guess what we're looking at? Four messages in a row. I think God wants to tell us something. Amen? I think He wants to minister to my heart, too about giving and being a more giving person. But he's telling them tonight that they need to make confession and bring offerings and tithes before God after they enter into the land of promise, that their eyes and hearts might remain focused on him and they might continue to minister one to another. So the, to, the title of tonight's message is Staying Desperate in Times of Blessing. You know what? It's really easy to stay desperate for God when everything's going sideways. When everything's a mess, often we might run from Him when we should be running to Him. But that's a time that is a lot easier to be desperate for God. But a time that there's a temptation not to be desperate for God is when everything is on cruise control. When money's in the bank and everybody's healthy and everything's going wonderful and everything's great and you're like, man, you know what? And it's so easy for us to get our eyes off of God. It's so easy for us to start resting and trusting in our bank account or something else. And the message tonight is really about staying desperate for God, even in the midst of blessings. And here's the four points we're going to see in the text tonight. Remember all that God has done for you. How do you stay desperate for God in times of blessing? You remember all that God has done for you and all that he's delivered you from. If you keep your eyes on remembering that, you'll stay desperate for God. We're also to give and worship and rejoice in light of all that he's done for us. When we realize what God has done for us, it should make us want to give. It should make us want to worship. It should bring about great rejoicing in our lives. Amen? Very, you know, one of my things that just kind of bugs me is when I see Christians who walking around like, looking like they've been sucking on a lemon. That should not happen. Amen? Are we going to heaven? Yep. We're going to heaven. Amen? We're going to leave these dead tents behind and we're going to be in the presence of Almighty God forevermore. And so often we just, well, well man, things are tough. Hey, you know what? I'm going to heaven. I'll tell you what. The worst day as a believer is better than the best day not knowing Christ. Amen? And too often we're envious of the world. And we need to stay desperate for God. And as we do and keep our eyes on Him, the worship and the rejoicing and the giving will be a natural outflowing of that intimate fellowship with God. Another thing that keeps us desperate is ministering to the needs of others. You know what? If you minister to others and you're being a conduit for the Lord, it helps you to stay desperate for God because you realize you can't do it without Him. You know what keeps me desperate for God? I have to teach the Bible twice a week. And I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to be standing before Almighty God and I'm going to be accountable for this. And so I used to tell my kids, my kids go, Dad, you don't know what it's like to have homework. I'm like, Really? How would you like to have a 30-page report due twice a week being graded by God? How about that? (laughs) And, you know, seriously, that keeps me desperate. And as we're serving God, we'll stay desperate. It keeps in a constant place of crying out to the Lord, help. You know, that's one of my favorite prayers. I pray it all the time. 
I'll be in the office sometimes at 4 o'clock in the morning on Saturday realizing I, you know, I have a long way to go on these notes still. And I'm like, out loud, Lord, help! Just like that. You know, he answers that prayer. Amen? That's a good prayer to pray. Desperate for God. Be desperate. Be seeking Him at all times. And then lastly, we do need to remember that we're special to God. In the light of His love for you. And because we're so special to Him and because He loves us so much, that should cause us to want to obey Him even more. God, you know what's best for me? You love me. You're not a no-fun bummer God trying to keep me from fun. You're a loving Heavenly Father who knows what's best for me. So the instruction you give me will bring you glory and will bless my life. It'll bless my marriage. It'll bless my home. It's a privilege. And so tonight, staying desperate in times of blessing, we're going to begin by remembering all that God has done for you. Now again, they're about to enter the land of promise. As they go into the land of promise, it'd be real easy to say, hey, we're not in the wilderness anymore. We're in a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at all the stuff we have. Our enemies are all defeated. This is great. And forget about God. And God's heart was they would not do that. That they would keep their eyes on Him. Let's begin in verse 1. Again, remember all that God has done for you. And it shall be when you come into the land. And again, if you've been coming, I love when God talks about stuff that hasn't happened yet like it already has. Amen? He doesn't say, if you come into the land. He says, when? And you know what I love about that? Because we know, did they go into the land just like He said? Yes. And you know what? He's promised me and He's promised you that we're going to heaven. And that we're going to see Him face to face. And just as He's been faithful to every promise in the Bible thus far, He's going to be faithful to that one too. And aren't you glad? Shouldn't that be an encouragement to us? And so he says to these guys, remember, they're all mounted up. These are his last few days. He says, when you go into the land, when you come in. Now, there was another group of people that should have gone in. Their their relatives, right? The previous generation. Why didn't they go in? Why did they miss out on God's highest? Rebellion. They saw the giants in the land. They wimped out. You know what? It's time for us to quit being wimpy Christians. Amen? Amen? It's time for us to realize, okay, God, you're faithful. And we're going to step out and we're going to go for it for you. You know what? I'd much rather go for it for God and be, you know what? I know God will forgive me for being too aggressive for him. That means someone who just sits around and does nothing for the kingdom of God because I'm afraid of messing up. Amen? Let's just, you know what? We need more of that. Let's be excited about God. Let's be sold out for God. Let's not be ashamed of the Lord. And he's telling them, okay, when you go into the land, I promised you you're coming. And when you come in, here's what's going to happen. And I love the promises of God, that they're going to possess the land. It's a promise of God. It's a done deal. Now remember, there's obstacles in front of them still. There's going to be a swollen Jordan of River because of the the flooding, the spring floods. There's going to be mighty armies, the giants in the land that had scared off the previous generation. But he said, when you go in, you're going to have victory. And look at the rest of the verse. Which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it. So how did they earn this? Did they earn this land? Is this something they worked hard for? He says he's giving it to them as an inheritance. Now we know, having been looking at this, that going over the Jordan River is a type of water baptism and is a picture of the Spirit-filled life. But I also believe in some ways it's a picture of heaven. Because we didn't earn heaven. Amen? It's been given to us. Salvation is a free gift. If we earned it, it'd be a paycheck. Amen? And the children of Israel didn't earn it. And the land and all its blessings were a free gift of God, given out to them out of His love for them. 
You know, again, I, I tell you, I want to encourage you. Too many people struggle because they forget how much God loves them. They just forget. You get caught up in your little world and stuff going on in your life, and you forget that you got the creator of the universe, Almighty God, on your side. Holy Spirit's living inside of you. And yet we panic about the littlest stuff. Why are we panicking? My God's in control. My best friend created the universe. Amen? Amen. He's got my back, right? You talk about home, he got my back. How about Almighty God? Created the universe on my side all the time. And so we see here, they're getting ready to go in the land of promise, and he tells them, look, I'm giving it to you as an inheritance. You're going to go in and possess it. Again, much like the gift of salvation. It's a free gift. But at the same time, I want to make it clear. Hard for people to understand this, but God will force it on no one. Salvation is offered universally, accepted individually. It is desired that none should perish, no, not one, but he's not going to hold you down and make you accept it. Choose today whom you're going to serve. Follow God or follow your, follow your flesh. Follow the world. Same thing's going to happen. They're going to go into the land of promise, and in the land of promise, land flowing with milk and honey, and land filled with temptation. For you and I, as Christians, walking with the Lord, a land flowing with great promises, and a land filled with temptation. Amen? Nothing new under the sun. Verse 2. That you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground, which shall, you shall bring from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and put it in a basket, and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. So he's telling them, when you go into the land, what, as soon as the first crops come up. Now you've got to realize there's going to be some time pass by. Because they're going to go into the land, and then they're going to plant the crops, right? And then they're going to have to water them, or the Lord's going to water them, but eventually something's going to come up. And they're going to have to wait. And then they're finally going to harvest it. Now, I'm not a farmer, but I don't know how long that whole season takes. I don't know if it's eight months, nine months, a year. I don't know what it is, but whatever amount of time it is, it's going to be more than a week or two. And his heart was, okay, when you've been in the land eight months, nine months, a year, however long it is, I don't want you to forget. I don't want you to forget that I'm the one that blessed you. I don't want you to forget that I'm the one that brought you here. I don't want you to be so blessed by all the stuff that you have that you forget about me. And so what I want you to do instead is he says, you shall take some of the last of all your produce. Is that what it says? I want you to take a little bit of whatever you got left over, whatever scraps are lying around. Just bring those to me if you feel like it. Is that what the text says? It says, bring you the first fruits. What should we be giving God? The worst, the last, the least, or the best? Give Him the best of what we have, amen? First check we write ought to be to the Lord, amen? And again, you know, I don't, I don't pound on people about giving. We don't pass an offering plate. But that's an absolute fact. You know what? We can find out where our heart is by looking in our checkbook. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you spend all your money on a hobby, then that's where your treasure is. It's okay to have hobbies, you guys, amen? But God must come first. And it's also true in giving of our time. Do you give God the last three minutes of the day when you're trying not to, you know, you're, you're sitting in your bed, you know, trying to read your Bible? I didn't get anything. I wake up with drool on your, you know, in the Psalms, drooling all over it. I don't know why I'm not getting anything out of my Bible reading. I watch six hours of TV and then give God three minutes and I'm falling asleep. We give Him the first fruits of our time, amen? We should be fresh when we're serving God, not giving Him what's left over. And so he says, bring the first fruits. Why? Because he did not want them to forget that he is the one that has blessed them. He is the one that delivered them. Now again, they could have been long enough to grow comfortable and complacent. And can I say this too? I love when I see people, and we've had a lot of it in this church, where somebody comes and they get saved, and man, they're on fire. 
They're in fuego, right? I mean, just whoa, right? Get out of the way. And you know what does break my heart? Is sometimes I'll watch them over time, and a few years down the road, they've kind of settled in a little bit. May we never settle in as Christians. May we never get to the point where it just becomes mundane, it's another Bible study, another time of going to church, another time reading my Bible, another time of worship. You know what? Every bit of that ought to be a picture and a taste of heaven, amen? And every bit of it ought to be a get to and not a have to and a joy and something we look forward to. Now, I look forward to coming to church because I look, I lo- I look forward to hugging every one of you guys. I can't wait. I pray for you throughout the week, and when I see you, it's seeing my family. I look forward to it. And that ought to be our heart, amen, in the body of Christ. Makes me think of something real quick. I know it's off the subject for just a second. But as our church continues to grow, one of the things that breaks my heart is I find out that someone's been in the hospital for three weeks and nobody told me. Now, I want to tell you that I need to be better at finding those things out, but if you know that somebody is sick or going through it and you're not not sure if we know, could you call the church office, please, and just let us know? Because it breaks my heart. Somebody was at church on Sunday, and I I hadn't seen him for a while. Oh, yeah, I was in the hospital. I'm like, what? And it just breaks my heart because I would have been praying. I would have visited something, but it just kills me. So if you would do that, I would really appreciate it. Because as the church gets bigger and bigger, we're going to have more and more of that slipping through the cracks. But here he is saying, don't be complacent. Make sure you bring the first fruits. God was constantly in the business of reminding the children of Israel that he was their God. Remember in the wilderness, he was dropping food out of the sky every day. Why didn't he just give them a month's worth? You know why? He wanted to get up every day and to go out every day and pick up the manna. You know what? Every day they came out and they looked up to see if the cloud had moved, right? The cloud was encamped over the tabernacle. They followed the cloud wherever it went. It made them get up in the morning and look up first to see if the cloud had moved and then look down and grab the food. It made them think about God every morning. And you know what? We need more of that. And that was God's heart in the wilderness. Well, now the manna's going to be gone. The cloud's not leading them around anymore. So now he says, I want the first fruits. You're going to be making regular sacrifices, but I don't want you to forget who it is that has blessed you. It's like I said on Sunday. It's not how much of our money we're going to give God. It's how much of His money we're going to keep. Amen? Because it all belongs to Him. And the children of Israel were not to be so enthralled with all that they had that they forgot about the Lord. And blessings can breed complacency if we don't remain desperate for God. Again, God is to be given the best, not the rest. He's to be given the first. And you know what? I've had people ask me, And again, you know me, I don't sit up here and ask you for money. I just don't. I never will. But let me tell you this. If I have to pay the electric bill or give the money to the Lord, I'm giving it to the Lord. Period. Why? Because God will take care of me. Amen? He will. Does he say that he'll take care of our basic needs? Yes, he does. Is he a liar? Absolutely not. And he says, test me in this. The only place in the Bible where he says to test us is in that area. Now again, that is so abused. That's why I steer clear of it so often. It's so abused by the world and they, these guys who are money grubbers trying to get your money. We're never going to do that. But at the same time, I believe we're missing out on a blessing if we don't realize that it's an act of worship to give to God first. Amen? Give to God first. You'll never regret it. You know what? It's the only thing I invest in that's going to outlast this life. Amen? Everything else is going to be perishing. That sweet new car you had to have six years ago is now in a junk heap somewhere, Right? Or you sold it for $80 or whatever you did to it. Somebody hauled it off and you gave it to charity, right? And seven or eight years ago, that was like, man, i got to have that. And we make such a priority about stuff that's passing away when we ought to make a priority about the thing that is not passing away. 
our relationship with the Lord. When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. And he says, where the Lord God chooses to make his name abide. Well, guess where that's going to be? That's going to be in the tabernacle initially, and later it'll be in the temple. So they had to bring this. So when they had a harvest, they had to go out of their way, come down to Jerusalem, and bring the first fruits and give it to God. So this was a big deal. This wasn't a five-minute thing. This wasn't, oh, maybe I should give something. This was planned, predetermined, before they ate anything, they gathered up the first fruits, and they, they did whatever transportation was necessary, and they went down, and they brought it before God, and they laid it out before Him. Again, that should be the heart of every believer. And you know what? I believe you're missing out on God's blessing when you don't do that. And I'm not talking about stuff. Because more stuff in most of our lives is probably not be a good thing. Amen? More stuff would probably be bad. And that's why I don't get it when, oh, you, know, you know, seven steps to grow rich, just give $1,000. Oh, that makes me sick. That makes me sick. If Jesus were alive today, he'd be driving a Rolls Royce. I heard a guy say that. The Bible says he had no place to lay his head. That's a little different. Amen? So may we just give it all away, and I'll tell you what, God will bless it. Verse 3, and you shall go to one who is the priest, who is priest in those days, and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. The key to this offering was an open acknowledgement that God alone was the one who had delivered them. God alone was the one who had given them the land. He said, I don't want you just to run in and throw the offering down and run away. He said, I want you to stand. And they had to, every individual had to make this proclamation. I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to your country, to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give to us. The promise of Almighty God is the reason we have what we have. Again, what was this for? To keep them from thinking it had something to do with them. You know, my great agricultural skills. You ought to see how much weed I grew this year, right? You ought to see how my cattle's multiplying, man. I just got it down, man. You should see what I'm doing. You know what I mean? And the Lord was saying, hey, I want you to come and give the offering, and then I want you to acknowledge that I'm the one who blessed you. We should be doing the same when we give our tithes and offerings, amen? Lord, I'm giving to you what you gave to me. It's all yours anyway, and Lord, thank you. And I'm giving this to you as an act of worship, as an act of praise, and I just praise you, Lord. I give this to you because I love you. He blessed them with the fruit of the land. And it kept them from taking any credit to themselves. Kept them mindful of God in their time of great blessing. Kept them desperate. Kept their eyes on God in the midst of times when things were great. Verse 4. Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. So the priest would take the basket out, we know from other texts, and he would wave it before God to symbolize that it indeed was an offering, but it had to be laid out by the altar. Why? Because any offering ultimately is a picture of the Lord. And the altar is a picture of the cross. And without the cross, there can be no offering. Without the cross, there can be no sacrifice. Without the altar... So he set it down before the altar of the Lord, the place of blood sacrifices and the type of the cross. Verse 5. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a Syrian about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number, and there he became a nation great, mighty, and populous. Now, who's the Syrian he's talking about here? It's Jacob. 
Who is the father? It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? If you guys remember the story, that Jacob, as we know, again, is, a, is the, quote, father of the 12 tribes of Israel. His name went from being Jacob to being Israel. And this confession was to be made for, again before the Lord to remind them of all God had done. It was a history lesson. No doubt they had to be coached on the prayer. Can you imagine? Okay, now when you go in there, here's what you have to say. And he had to tell the next generation, now when you go in there, here's what you need to say. And you need to remember, and well, who is this Syrian we're talking about when we confess it before God? Well, that's Jacob. Well, what happened to Jacob? Well, let me tell you. And, we, and as we know what happened, that Jacob, again, was a Syrian. He was not an Israelite because he was the first Israelite. Amen? So he wasn't an Israelite. He didn't grow up in, you know, he became Israel. And though he was born in Canaan, his mother was a Syrian. His grandfather, Abraham, was a Chaldean, which is a part of Syria. He also resided in Syria for a long time. It's also known as Mesopotamia. He was about to perish. He was 130 years old. There was a time of great famine. What did God do? He brought them down to Egypt. Now, we know that later they were enslaved in Egypt, as we're going to see in the next few verses. But he went down to Egypt, and he dwelt there, few in number, and became a great nation, great, mighty, and populous. You want to get specific? He went down there with about 70 people, and when they left, there were as many as 3 million. So they grew in Egypt, amen? Now, there's another reason that God brought them to Egypt, as to be the place where they were in bondage. Because one thing about the Egyptians, they would not intermarry with the Israelites. They wouldn't do it. Whereas the Canaanites would have no problem with it, other lands would have no problem with it. And so it kept the Israelites pure. It kept them set apart to God. And so they're in Egypt, and remember that, they, that and I love this picture of Joseph, because Joseph, how did he get to Egypt? His brothers threw him in a pit because they were jealous. And after they threw him in a pit, they were going to kill him, they thought, well, let's make a few bucks. Why kill him? So they sold him into slavery. Then he was taken, he was sold and became a a man in Egypt who was a servant in Egypt. And then he became a man of great authority in Egypt. But not until after he'd been falsely accused and imprisoned and all the kinds of things that happened. And then God used him to bless his own brothers who had thrown him in a pit. What a picture of grace, amen? His brothers show up and, you know, he's in charge. He could have had them all killed. He could have called them and said, hey, remember the pit? Remember that? Call out some big guys, big buff dudes, like some, you know, battle axes or something. Okay, line them up, right? Could have, could have dug a 20-foot pit out back and thrown them in and went by and taunted them. How, how does it feel, right? Now, isn't that how we feel sometimes? We want to respond with vengeance. But the Bible says you don't overcome evil with evil, you overcome evil with good. And you might wonder, now, they went down to Egypt, and what's amazing is it went from 70 people to between 2 and 3 million when they marched out. But I want you to see when this great growth took place. When did they become this mighty nation? How did it take place? Look at verse 6. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. When did they grow? Through times of affliction. When did they grow? Through times of difficulty and bondage. When do you and I grow the most spiritually? Through times of affliction. Through times of trials. Through times of difficulty. Because what does it do? It makes us desperate for God. It it, it takes the complacency out of us. 
And so that's why it says in James, to count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Because it's through those trials that that fruit is being produced. When you squeeze a lemon, you get lemon juice. And when you squeeze a Christian, you ought to get Christ-likeness. Amen? And it's when we're squeezed that we grow. And so when did they grow as a nation? When did they? And look how they respond. Because they're in this, this time when they're being multiplied is in the midst of persecution. You know, later in the book of Acts, the same thing would happen. If you guys remember, that when they were persecuted was when the church spread out and began to reach the further, further uh, lands. Remember, Paul was, was an evangelist before he knew it. He was Saul of Tarsus attacking Christians, and all he did was send them scattered, and churches were getting planted everywhere he chased them. And so he was an evangelist even before he knew it. And then he got saved, and of course everything changed. The more the enemy persecuted the early church, the more it was multiplied. And the same was true of the children of Israel. Now, look at the response of the bondage and the hardship. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers. Not, we got our act together, we amassed a great army, and we overthrew the enemy, but we cried out to the Lord. Therein lies the secret of, of deep growth, crying out to God. Getting in a position where it is, Lord, help! Good place to be. Great place to be. Desperate for God. I told you guys this a few weeks back. My nephew called me one time. He was in England. He was getting ready to start being a youth pastor. And he you know, said, Uncle David, could you tell me some... some Give me some words of wisdom as I start the ministry. And I said, I'm going to give you two words. Be disciplined and be desperate. You be disciplined in your prayer life. You be disciplined in studying the word. You be disciplined in reaching out to those kids and you stay desperate for God. And if we'll stay disciplined like it all, is, it all depends on us and we stay desperate like it all depends on God, God's going to do great things. Amen? And the heart was the same here as he's telling them, you know, they cried out to the Lord. And you know what? When we cry out to God, he's going to hear us. He doesn't turn a deaf ear. That's exactly where we need to be. And he cried out to the Lord. And it says there, so they cried out to the Lord, God of our fathers. The Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. Again, when we cry out to God, he sees exactly what we're going through. Doesn't it comfort you to know that whatever you're going through tonight, God knows? Whatever's going on in your life, whatever radical thing, maybe nobody else in this room knows, God knows. And you're not alone. And should be encouraged by that, amen? You should be strengthened in the midst of that difficulty. Verse 8. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders, I guess so. How did they get out of Egypt? Man, you want to talk about some radical stuff. The Lord brought us out. It was God who delivered us. It wasn't a great army, but God's power and His mercy. He brought great terror and signs and wonders. Now, I want to make it real clear. The great terror was not great terror for those who were seeking after Him. It was great terror for those who were in rebellion against Him. Amen? And how did He do this? He brought these signs and wonders upon Pharaoh and his people. He brought the ten plagues. And it was the last plague that finally delivered them out. It was one plague after another, and Pharaoh kept hardening his heart, and hardening his heart, and hardening his heart. And eventually, God brought one where Pharaoh said, okay, I give. But even that was short-lived. Because as they gathered up and they began to leave, it was at Passover that deliverance out of bondage came. And again, I know this will be repetitive for many of you. But Passover is a picture of the cross. 
Remember, they had to take the blood of the lamb, they had to apply it to the doorpost in the shape of the cross, at the feet, at the head, at both sides. And anybody who had the blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost, the angel of death passed over and they were delivered. But those who did not apply the blood of the lamb, the angel of death visited their home and the firstborn eldest son died. Now, what's interesting about that, again, if they had the blood, it wasn't enough. They had to apply it. They couldn't just believe that the blood worked. They couldn't just believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had to apply the blood. They had to take the blood and apply it. And you and, two, you and I need to do the same. We can't just believe in the cross. We must apply it to our lives. Amen? We must come with repentant hearts broken before Him. And so Passover came, and when the blood was applied, again, they were delivered out. But remember what happened when they went out. Pharaoh panicked in, not in a short amount of time and started chasing him with, with his chariots. And they got backed up at the Red Sea. And they'd just seen the mighty hand of God at work, and they were already questioning God and questioning Moses. Oh, we're done! You brought us out here to die! Thanks, Moses! And, you know, and again, through great trials comes great deliverance. Amen? A mountain on each side and a sea behind you? Hey, you know, we'd probably be, what was that? What kind of general are you? Right? And what had happened? We know what happened. God opened the Red Sea. They marched right through it, and the army of, of Pharaoh got swallowed up. And what an awesome thing. If there had been no trial, they would never get to see God move. And the same is true for you and I. Without a test, there can be no testimony. Without the great trials, there's no opportunity for great growth. And so instead of running from them, we need to draw near to God in the midst of them. You know what? Look at verse 9. It says here, He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So remember, when is this taking place? This is at the feast, when they bring that first fruits before God. Not a feast, but just bringing their offering. And when they bring that offering in, they're replaying everything that had happened that brought them into the land. They were remembering. You know what? I love hearing gospel messages. I love it. I love when I'm in my car. I love when Billy Graham's on. I'll stop and I'll watch it. I'm saved, but I love it anyway. Why? Because it reminds me what God has done for me. Amen? I love to hear it. I love to see people going forward and giving their lives to God. It blesses me. And so this was a reminder. Each person, every family is coming in and bringing it in and telling the same story. I'm the son of a Syrian. Right? And he came down and we were in desperation. And he came down and God delivers by mighty hand. He heard our hand and we came out and it was a reminder. Now he brought us into this land flowing with milk and honey. What's this doing? Who's being glorified? It keeps them desperate for God in the midst of blessings. Amen? They don't get to the place where they forget. How did we get here? I forget. I don't know. <laughs> Grandma and Grandpa brought us and this is what happened. And it's pretty sweet here and... Something about some wilderness thing, but I forgot all about it. God didn't want them to do that. God wanted them to remember what they had been delivered from so they would not become complacent. They were in that land flowing with milk and honey. They'd entered into God's highest. Now, if you've been born again, you've been delivered out of bondage. And by the way, you don't need to be delivered from anything else. You've been delivered. I have people call me and want deliverance prayer. I'm like, are you born again? You've been delivered, Amen. You don't need to be delivered from the demon of chocolate or anything else, right? I got this demon on me. No, you don't. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Amen? Amen. I don't. The devil can't touch me because God won't let him. Amen? And if he does, it's going to be for my growth anyway. So here's the point. The point is that we're to keep our eyes on God, be desperate for God, be in that situation, but realize as Christians, we've been born again and we've been delivered, but at the same time, I believe there are a lot of Christians wandering around in the wilderness. 
where you've been saved, but you've not experienced God's highest. You've not entered into all that God has for you. You got the get out of hell free card. You're happy with that. Hey, as long as I go, it's all good. And you know what? You're wandering around the wilderness, and here's the land flowing with milk and honey right over here. Yeah, well, I'm good right here. God's like, wait a minute. Look how much more I have for you. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been born again. You're going to heaven, but you're missing out on God's highest. You have little or no impact on the world. And there are many Christians that that's true of. Having little or no impact on the world. When's the last time you shared your faith with somebody? But I'm not called to do that. Yes, you are. Go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. Who is he talking to? All of us. Amen? Now, certainly some are more gifted than others. But you know what? We don't need a class in lifestyle evangelism. What we need is to just be shining for Jesus, and we're not going to be, we can't help it, but impact the world around us. Amen? Amen. I mean, if you're on fire for God, people are going to come up and say, dude, what's up with you? What, ha- what's, what, are, what's, what are you all about? How come everybody's panicking and you're not? And I'll tell you what else. Start praying for people by name, and you watch God give you chances to share with them. You'll be blown away. I told you this story. I wasn't, you know, I had a few people at work. I was disgusted with them. I was in my early 20s. It was right before I became a youth pastor. And there's all these people. I was just disgusted with them. I mean, this girl's sleeping on her hut and they're cheating on them. I used to just walk in the office and go, man, these people make me sick. And I remember driving home and God said, I put you there to be salt and light. You need to start loving those people. But I don't like them. <laughs> Love them. Okay, but I don't have to like them, do I? And so I started praying for them by name and it was amazing. There was one lady that was a real devout Buddhist and was into the whole feng shui and all that. I mean, I was just like, you could tell we got along great, right? I just walked by and out of her mind, right? And I'll never forget that I start praying for this woman. The first time I pray for her, I get in the elevator. She gets in the elevator with me. She turns to me and says, so Dave, you're one of those born-again Christians, right? (laughs) Yeah. So what does that mean? I'm like, hello? I mean, I didn't do anything. I just prayed and said, here I am, Lord, use me. And God's desire is that we would be available, amen? That he would use us for his glory. And again, God desires that we go more than not just being delivered out of bondage, but having a life that's impacting the world around us. Having a life that's transformed, that people see Jesus in us. I'm a little fired up tonight, I know, but that's okay. We ought to be, amen? God's desire that we enter into the spirit-filled life. And you know what he said? I want you to have life and life more what? abundant and that's not talking about more stuff he's talking about more of him he's talking about more of the holy spirit overflowing out of your life and touching lives around you life more abundant staying desperate for god in times of blessing remember all that god has done for you all that he's delivered you from that will keep you desperate next we are to give worship and rejoice in light of all God has done for us. Look at verse 10. And now behold, I have brought you the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So they stand before him. They got the first fruits. It's reminding them that God's done it all. He's delivered them. And then they replay how their ancestors had been delivered, how God had moved in a mighty hand. He delivered them out of bondage. He brought them into the land. And then it says they're to do what? They're to worship him. They come in, they bring the offering, you shall set it before the Lord and worship. So when offering should be an act of worship. It's not a, oh, I got to give again? Yeah, I got paid. Man, I guess I'll give. Right? 
Don't do that. If you're, you're going to give that way, I said it on Sunday, just don't bother. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. We saw it on Sunday. Word is hilarion. It's where we get the word hilarious. God wants us to give cheerfully. Giving out of love for God, not out of duty. Not because somebody twisted my arm or they kept passing the plate till they got to a number. Now I'm going to put some money in there so they'll just stop this already, you know? And the other thing that kills me is a guy on the radio say, if we don't get enough money by Friday, we're going to be off the air. Then go off the air. Because we don't need to beg. Amen? Where God guides, God provides. He's greater than that. We don't have to beg people and coerce people, manipulate people or any of that. We're just not going to do it. We should not do it. So bring him the first fruits, first of your income, first of your time, first of your talents, and do it as an act of worship. We come thanking and remembering God for all that he has done. And when we do, it makes us want to give. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done. Lord, how could I not give to you? Lord, I was once lost and now I'm found. How could I not give to you? Lord, I was once caught up in drugs and alcohol. My life was a mess. My marriage was a disaster. And you delivered me and you put my marriage back together. And you've done all these great and awesome works in my life. And I understand what life's all about for the first time. How can I not give to you? Lord, you've done so many great things in my heart. How can I not give to you? Again, an act of worship. First fruits of the land you have given us. Again, all that has been given us by God. It's all His. And again, not, much, not how much of our stuff we're going to give God, but how much of His stuff we're going to hold on to. Now, not only do we give, not only do we worship, but look what it says here. So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house. So you shall rejoice in every good thing that you went out and sweated out and earned by your hard work. Is that what it says? Now, the Bible says a man who does not work shall not eat. So we should work. And we should take these gifts God's given us and use them for His glory. Amen? And as we work hard, the provision that comes from working hard and the health He's given us is the stuff He's providing for us. He gets the glory, not us. Amen? And so... For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And as we give and as we rejoice, then that's where our heart's going to be. I said it on Sunday. As you give to ministries, you become more knit to that ministry. As I give to Gospel for Asia and I support the two missionaries I support and I pray for them by name on a consistent basis, you know what? I got such a burden for these guys. And I'm knit to the ministry. If I don't give, I have no interest in it. Or very little anyway. But when we give, we become knit to the, to the ministry. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus said this, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. If we're giving the first fruits, if we're giving it all to God, if we're rejoicing in the Lord for all He has done, it's very easy to give. He says, Given to you your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. You shall rejoice in every good thing the Lord God has given to you. God has blessed us that we might rejoice in Him. And again, it's a joy to give back. Tithing should not be a time of tears, but a time of cheers. We should be excited to give. It's a get-to and not a have-to. You know what? I very rarely do this, but I'm going to anyway. So there it is. I'm going to read something to you. I'd never do this. I told the guys I was going to do this. I'm going to say, people are going to think they went to the wrong church. But I'm going to read this to you because this really struck me. And this is a story about giving. It's short. It says, and this is called The Rich Family in Our Church. I'll never forget Easter 1946. I was 14. My little sister Osi was 12. My older sister Darlene was 16. We lived at a home with our mother and four of us knew what it was to do without many things. My dad had died five years before, leaving my mom with seven kids to raise and no money. 
1946, my older sisters were married. My brothers had left home. A month before Easter, the pastor at a church announced that a special Easter offering would be taken to help a poor family. He asked everyone to save and give sacrificially. We got home and we talked about what we could do. We decided to buy 50 pounds of potatoes and live on them for a month. This would allow us to save $20 on our grocery money for the offering. We then thought if we could keep the electric lights turned out as much as possible and didn't listen to the radio, we'd save on that month's electric bill. Darlene got as many house and yard cleaning jobs as possible, and both of us babysit for everyone we could. For 15 cents, we'd buy enough cotton loops to make three potholders and sell them for a dollar. We made $20 on potholders. That month was one of the best of our lives. Every day we counted the money to see how much we had saved. At night we'd sit in the dark and talk about how the poor family was going to enjoy having the money the church would give them. We had about 80 people in our church, so we figured that the amount of money we had to give, the offering would surely be 20 times that amount. After all, every Sunday the pastor reminded everyone to save for the sacrificial offering. The day before Easter, O.C. and I walked to the grocery store and got the manager to give us three crisp $20 bills and one $10 bill for all our change. We ran all the way home to show Mom and Darlene. We had never seen so much money in our lives. That night we were excited. We could hardly sleep. We didn't care that we wouldn't get new clothes for Easter. We had $70 for the sacrificial offering. We could hardly wait to get to church. On Sunday morning, the rain was pouring. We didn't own an umbrella. The church was over a mile from our home, but it didn't seem to matter how, how wet we got. Darlene had, a car, had cardboard in her shoes to fill the holes. The cardboard came apart. Her feet got wet, but we sat in church proudly. I heard some teenagers talking about the Smith girls having their old dresses. I looked at them in their new clothes, and I felt so rich. When the sacrificial offering was taken, we were sitting in the second row of the front. Mom put in a $10 bill, and each of us girls put in 20 as we walked home after church, we sang all the way. At lunch, Mom had a surprise. She brought a dozen eggs, and we boiled some eggs with our fried potatoes. It was great. Late that afternoon, the minister drove up in his car. Mom went out to the door and talked to him for a moment, and then came back with an envelope in her hand. When asked what it was, we asked what it was, but she didn't say a word. She opened up the envelope, and out fell a bunch of money. There were three crisp $20 bills, one $10 bill, and 17 ones. Mom put the money back in the envelope. We didn't talk. We just sat there and stared at the floor. We had gone from feeling like millionaires to feeling like poor white trash. We kids had, done, had such a happy life. We felt sorry for anyone who didn't have our mom and dad for parents, a house full of brothers and sisters and kids visiting constantly. We thought it was fun to share silverware, see whether or not we got the fork or the spoon that night. We had two knives. We passed them around to whoever needed them. I knew we didn't have a lot of things other people had, but I never thought we were poor. That Easter day, I found out that we were. The minister had brought us money, the poor family, so we must be poor. I didn't like being poor. I looked at my dress and my worn-out shoes. I felt ashamed I, that I did, so ashamed I didn't want to go back to church. Everybody there probably knew we were poor. I thought about school. I was in ninth grade, top of my class. I wondered if the kids at school knew I was poor. I decided I'd quit school since I was in the eighth grade, and the law requir- that was as far as the law required at the time. We sat in silence for a long time. Then it got dark. We went to bed. All that week, we girls went to school and came home, and no one talked much. Finally, on Saturday, Mom asked us what we wanted to do with the money. What do poor people do with money? We didn't know. We had never known we were poor. We didn't want to go to church on Sunday, but Mom said we had to. Although it was a sunny day, we didn't talk on the way. Mom started to sing, but nobody joined in as she sang. At church, we had a missionary speaker. 
He talked about how churches in Africa made buildings out of sun-dried bricks, but they needed money to buy roofs. He said $100 would put a roof on the church. The minister said, can we all sacrifice for these poor people? We all looked at each other and smiled for the first time in a week. Mom reached into her purse, pulled out the envelope. She passed it to Darlene. Darlene gave it to me. I handed it to O.C. and she put it in the offering. When the offering was countered, the minister announced that it was a little over $100. The missionary was excited. He hadn't expected such a large offering for such a small church. He said, you must have some really rich people in this church. Suddenly it struck us. We had put in $87 of the little over 100 so we must be the rich family in the church. <laughs> hadn't the missionary said so? From that day on, I never felt poor again, and I always remembered how rich I am because I have Jesus. That's giving. Amen? Amen? That's sacrificial giving. Can you imagine a family doing that? Can you imagine sitting in the dark with the radio off because it's going to save you a few pennies so you can give it to somebody else? Man, we could use more Christians like that. Amen? Staying desperate in times of blessing. Remember all that God has done for you and give and worship and rejoice. Verses 12 through 15. In this portion, we're going to see that we're to minister to the needs of others. When you finish laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of the tithing, and of giving it to the Levite and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow, so they may eat within your gates and be filled. Back in Numbers 18, we talked about how the Levite was provided for, the priests and the ministers every, uh, of every tithe. But there was a special tithe every third year that was given only for the poor, for the orphans and the widows. And they were given to and to be cared for. And again, that offering was to be taken. You know what? When we're giving to others less fortunate than us, it keeps us desperate for God. Amen? It keeps us from getting complacent in our walk. We start looking around for those who have need. And again, pure and undefiled religion is to minister to the orphans and the widows. And as I say every time, but not the lazy. Amen? We are to minister to the orphans and the widows. This time, it was not taken to Jerusalem, but it was kept in their hometown, and it was given to those who had need. Then you shall say before the Lord your God. Now again, this is another proclamation. Okay? On the third year, you bring the tithe. I don't want you to forget me. So you bring the tithe, and this is for the poor. And then I want you to say this, and this is what they would say. I have removed the holy tithe from my house. I have also given them to the Levite, the stranger, and the fatherless, the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. That would be really hard to say if that wasn't true. Lord, I have not forgotten your commandments. Why, is he, why are they saying this? Because he didn't want them to forget. He didn't want them to be so caught up in the things of the world they forgot that what God had called them to do. With the time tithe came this declaration. The giving was done from the right kind of heart. God not only wants us to give, but he wants us to give with the right heart. Right giving is, is done according to God's word. According, he says, according to all your commands. How do you know if you follow God's command if you don't read the Bible? How do you know if you're walking in the center of God's will if you never spend time in his word? It's impossible. And that's why we need to be in the word of God daily. Amen? Verse 14. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning. Now why would he have them say this? They would have to say, I've brought the entire tithe, I've given all of it, I've kept your commands, and I've not eaten any of it while in mourning. He's saying, mourning is not an excuse not to give. Too often we'll think, well, I'm going through a difficult time, I can't give right now, people should give to me. You know what? I should never be looking to be given to. I should always be looking to give. Amen? Now, we should be looking for those who are in need and we should give to them out of a heart of love, but my heart should never be, I'm looking to be given to. Now, I want to say this. If there's a need and, you, and, 
I want you to make it known to us. Family doesn't have food, things like that. Come talk to us. We want to know, all right? It's okay to let that need be known. But the point I'm making is we should not always be looking to get. We should always be looking to give. We should be like this poor family that thought they were given to another poor family when they were the poor family everybody wanted to give to. Amen? Great lesson for us to learn. And again, he says there, don't do it because I have not eaten any of it one morning, nor have I removed any of it for unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. There was a thing where the Canaanites would take food and, and put it in with dead people. So they could like, that's stupid or what. Give it to, you know, it's like these, these tombs and stuff, right? They go in and they got all their stuff with them and they leave food in there. It's like when you're dead and you get hungry and you wake up, you get something to eat. And he said, we're not giving it for the dead. We're going to give it to those who are living, Amen. We're going to minister to those who are in need. I've not done anything to satisfy fleshly needs or I haven't spent any of it on dead stuff. I'm giving it in obedience to the Lord. I'm giving Him the first fruits. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I've done according to all that you command me. Verse 15. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. Lord, we've honored you in our giving Bless our land. You know what? How can we ask God to bless us when we haven't been faithful to give to Him? That's the point right here. He said, do all that first, then, Lord, bless our land. You know what? If we're outside of God's will, if we disregard His commands, if we're not in fellowship, we're not in the Word, we have no prayer life, we're not giving to the Lord, and then we say, Lord, bless my marriage. How can He bless your marriage if you're not walking with Him? How can he bless your marriage if you're not praying with your wife and being a spiritual leader in your home? How can he bless your kids and have them love and serve and honor God if you're not being obedient to the Lord and raising them in a Christian home and teaching them the truth? We shouldn't be praying and asking God to bless us when we're walking outside of his will and we're not ministering the way God has called us to. God has blessed us. We should be thankful. We should walk in obedience. But remember, and I want to say this, broken marriages and wayward children often but not always you can be on fire for God and raise your kid in a most godly home and they can still choose to walk away from the Lord. But sometimes the reason they're not walking with God is the example they saw at home. Moms and dads who weren't praying, moms and dads who weren't being spiritual leaders, and you wonder why your kids don't love God. Well, what example did you give them? Now, I want to say very clearly, I know many of you have kids who are not walking with God and you raise them in godly homes. And you keep praying for them, amen? Because they do have free will and they still will make their own choices. But I want to say this, dads, it starts with you. You should be able to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. I need to make that stand in your house. And don't back down. You know what? It's not, sometimes it's not easy to make that stand, but you need to do it anyway. Lastly, remember that you are special to God. In light of all of His love, obey His voice. This day, the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. This day, this is prior to entering into the land of promise. This flashes back to Moses now. He's talking to them, and he says, This day, you show me, you, the day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes. So he's still telling them that they are to walk in obedience. He exhorts them with a call to complete obedience, to obey not just the letter of the law, but to do it with both their heart and their soul. As believers, we should not obey God's word out of drudgery or under the hunt, heavy hand of a tyrant, but we should obey him out of an act of love unto our precious Savior. Amen? Obedience to Him should be, because He loves me. And He knows what's best for me. And I don't get it sometimes. 
And it's not enough just to hear not God's word or to know God's word. It must transform our hearts. It must be something that reaches down and transforms us. That's why you must have more than a casual acquaintance with His Word. Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God, and that you will walk in His ways and keep His statutes, His commandments, and His judgments, and that you will obey His voice. Israel proclaimed two things, that the Lord is their God, and that they will walk in obedience to His command. Those two things have to go together. The Lord cannot be your God unless you're walking in obedience. He can be your... It's Savior and Lord, amen? Lord means you're, in, you're walking in obedience to Him. He's in charge of every aspect of your life. Verse 18, Also today the Lord has proclaimed you to be His special people, just as He promised you that you shall keep His commandments and that He, shall, he will set you on high above all nations, which He has made in praise, in name, in honor, that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as He has spoken. God's promised response to Israel's obedience was that they would, when we're obedient, God is glorified and we get blessed. If Israel obeyed the Lord, they would be more than rewarded. God promised He would make them greater than every nation. That He would exalt them above every nation. You know what, guys? We're God's special people today. Amen? And He desires to bless us so that we might minister to others. He desires to have us be salt and light. He desires to be, let us be the moon and reflect that, the sun, right? Not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N. And he desires that we would be that. And you know what? He wants to do that. And then you know how that's going to happen, you guys? If we remain desperate for God. We need to remain desperate for God at all times, even in times of blessing. How do we do that? We remember all that God has done for us, all that he's delivered us from. Remember that you're a sinner saved by grace and don't ever forget that. Remember who you were before you came to know Christ and what incredible work He's done in your life. And that will give you a burden for the lost and it will keep you desperate for God. When you are desperate for God in times of blessing, you'll have a heart to give, to worship, and to rejoice. In light of all that He's done for you, that rejoicing will flow right out of you. That worship will be a natural outpouring. Can I say this too? You can tell where someone's heart is by how they worship. I absolutely believe that. Because if you're really in love with Him, you're going to want to worship Him. Amen? Is He worthy to be worshipped? Yes. Nothing else is, no one else is, but He is. Amen? Amen. And you know what? If we, if we don't worship, that's a sign of where my heart's at. That tells me something very... You know what you're going to do in heaven, you guys? Worship! You're not going to pray in heaven. You're not going to read your Bible in heaven because the Word's going to be there, Jesus. Amen? You're not going to share your faith in heaven because everybody there is already saved. Amen? But you will worship. You want to get a taste of heaven? Worship. Amen? We need to have that heart. And then lastly, that as we stay desperate for God, we'll minister to the needs of others and we'll remember how special we are in His sight. And I'll tell you what, it just takes away all the burdens and all the stress of life when I remember whose kid I am, when I remember who I belong to, when I remember where I'm headed, when I know what my future holds, the things of this earth go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the blessing and the knowledge, Lord, that You love us so very much. You desire to minister to every heart that is here. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women who remain desperate for You at all times. Lord, may we never grow complacent in our walk. May we never put our trust in our careers, our bank accounts, our abilities, our health, anything else, Lord, but in you. Lord, and I pray you would do whatever is necessary in each of our lives, Lord, to keep us desperate, 
Lord, if that means trials, then bring us through the trials. Lord, and I pray in the midst of them, we'll keep our eyes on you. Father, I so desperately want to see a move of your hand in this body. And Lord, may it begin in each one of our individual hearts. May you do great and awesome things. May we not hide our light under a bushel. May we be sold out for you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.